a CTV original podcast produced by Bell Media Studios. This podcast contains adult themes and violence. Listener discretion is advised. The first demand is from the captors. The kidnapper told me, don't involve the police. The next comes from the police. The RCMP said, you can't pick up the phone anymore. In a hostage negotiation, it's all about who has the power. Silence is a weapon that they will use. You may not hear anything for 10 days, or two weeks, or six weeks. But as we're about to learn, silence can be a weapon with unpredictable outcomes. And it's something that I still suffer with today. I'm Marcy Ian, and this is Taken Abroad, Episode 4, The Weapon of Silence. He never answered the phone. Julie Mulligan is in danger. Abducted and held for ransom in Nigeria, she phones her husband John twice a day, pleading for him to pay her kidnappers. But on the ninth day, he doesn't pick up. To be honest, I thought that John had went back to work. You worried? I wasn't so much worried. It's just like, why aren't you why aren't you answering my call? Like, are you too busy at work that you can't answer my call? And so I did feel extremely abandoned. And it's something that I still suffer with, this fear of abandonment. How does it show itself? It's just an irrational fear that still, every once in a while, after 10 years, still struggle with that. The feeling of abandonment is quite profound, and it's one of the things that the captors seek to instill. One of the techniques or tactics that captors often use is to poison you on their end while they're talking to you directly and tell you things like, no one cares about you. They've moved on with their lives. They've forgotten about you. And they try to rob their captor of their hope. Chuck Friedman has worked as a field operative for several U.S. government agencies. She's a leading expert on kidnapping and ransom and the author of Survival Ready with her business partner, Billy Jensen. We teach anti-kidnapping and hostage survival and situational awareness and many other skills. We also respond to hostage situations. So when something does happen and there is a person out there for whom things have gone too far, we have an entire array of tools at our disposal that we can use to get people back. Check also knows what it's like to be kidnapped. At the age of 16, I left home one day, walked out the front door to go looking for my sister. When I got out on the main part of the bike path, I felt something in my back and I heard a man's voice. He told me to be still, not scream, not say a word. He had a gun and he wanted me to come with him. And so my first thought was, can I fight him? And I realized that I did not have the training or the experience to deal with a gun in my back. And so I asked myself, okay, what's left? Well, I can make an informed choice to submit because I think at this moment in time, that is my best bet for surviving the situation. He took me away on foot. We came out the other side to an undeveloped section of land, which was just woods, and he held me and he raped me there. He told me to count to 100 and be quiet and that he would go. He warned me that if I told anyone about it, he would come back and kill me and kill my entire family. And then he disappeared. And the reason I survived was because I recognized that I had a choice to make. What that did for me was to allow me to look back at that situation and see it as a self-rescue. 
I was able to see it not as a defeat that day, but as a mechanism of survival. Today, Czech teaches survival skills to people who may find themselves in a situation like Julie's, kidnapped overseas and held for ransom. How did these experiences, Czech, help you help the people you teach survival to? Can you detail some of the psychological challenges that a captive might face in a kidnapping for ransom scenario? One of the first things that they will face is the shock of capture. Kidnappers will be brutal right up front. And the reason they do that is to get the absolute compliance of the person that they are taking. So the person faces the challenge of overcoming the shock of capture in the first place. There is the depression and the anxiety that sets in, sometimes guilt about understanding what their families are going through and heaping guilt upon themselves for the choices they made to go to this place in the first place. And if a captive begins to bond with a captor, one of the things that happen is that they begin to identify with that person or with those people. They look to them for protection. They look to them for information and everything else. One of the things that happened during Julie's kidnapping was the use of silence as a weapon. Uh, can you give us any insight? Keeping her in a silent environment deprives her of information. And information is life. So the hopelessness and the depression and the anxiety will all be at their most pronounced in an information vacuum. If they can get her into that emotional state where each one of those things is at its most pronounced, she will be most malleable and most compliant. What might the good guys on one side of a negotiation, why might they suddenly stop communicating? Oftentimes, what you'll have is a little bit of a power play between the hostage taker and the hostage negotiator, where one will initiate a call to the other, and the other will not answer a few phone calls and then finally answer one. Whoever is able to not answer for a while and then answer at will is in the driver's seat. John Mulligan has jumped on every call that's come into the house following the new police directive to not answer Julie's calls is excruciating. Not answering the phone was, even to this day, stressful to think about it. I had basically just had to live with that, hoping that it, would, it was the right decision to make. Julie's the only person that knew she was alive. But I knew one thing. I knew my wife was strong. I knew my wife would do everything in her power to come back. So what was the reaction, Greg, when the RCMP says flatly, there will be no communication, John. Don't pick up the phone. That part was hard. You had communication and then it was just cut off. It just tore him right up. You know, listen at it, phone ring and ring and ring. And then just nothing, nobody's picking it up. And he just looked lost. He just looked lost. Did you at that time think that that was the right thing to do? I wasn't thinking about myself. I was doing my trust into the RCMP. You gotta trust in people that know what to do. You have to put trust in the people. Greg tells me he is unsure whether his dad has the strength to ignore Julie's next call. He keeps a close eye on him as the hours tick by. It was late. Uh, they haven't called for a little while. Dad was up to bed. Greg was um, sleeping downstairs. And he said to me, he said, Dad, Dad, don't answer that phone now if it rings. Remember, remember. And I says, no, I won't, I won't, son. The phone rang. And that phone rang. 
And uh, I heard my dad run down those stairs. I can still close my eyes and hear Gregory running because he's 6'4", up the stairs shouting, don't, don't answer the phone, Dad. And basically I ran up and had to hold him back. And he was, he was aggressive. Um, thank goodness I'm just as big as him or not bigger. And uh, it, it basically came down to me holding my dad back while he struggled to get that phone. That's all he wanted that night was just to talk to his wife or whoever may have been on the other line. I held him and the phone quit. And he was upset, definitely. Um, upset with me, not letting him answer the phone. But again, we had strict orders. Tell me about what you were thinking when you're calling your husband and he's not picking up on the other line. I was feeling incredibly abandoned. Julie tells me she's devastated as she passes the unanswered phone to the man overseeing her every move. Christian had assumed the role as the boss, so I call him boss number two. He had a real mean streak to him. Maybe it was just a mean streak because all of a sudden he wound up having to look after me when perhaps that wasn't his intention. And how did that mean streak play out? Were you ever hurt under his watch? I wasn't hurt under his watch, but I could have been hurt. Anthony, the younger guy, had some keys. And he came to sit beside me. I had on a pair of men's boxer shorts and a button-up man's shirt, short sleeve button-up man's shirt, and my high heels. That's what I had on every day. And he came to sit beside me, Anthony, and he ran his hand up my leg. And I grabbed his hand really hard because that shook me that here's this kid, the same age as mine, running his hand up my leg. And I grabbed his hand and I said, don't you? I said, only person who touches me there is my husband. And he kind of walked it back and then he was he was pouting and he, so he stood up, but he left his, the keys behind. I grabbed the keys, wasn't quite sure what to do with them. And then I took them into my bedroom and I scraped the, underneath the, um, what do you call it? It's like underneath the mattress, there's that flimsy material underneath the mattress. Yes. So I ripped that and I put the keys inside. And then I got scared about that. And I thought, oh, I shouldn't put them there. So I had them back in my hand and I just, I went and sat on the couch. And he came in and he, he sat beside me. And when I moved, all of a sudden this clink, clink. You could hear the keys. Yeah, he heard the keys and he was mad. He was mad, mad. He took them from me and um, he went and told Oyo and Oyo came in and he raised his arm up and he raised it like this. And he is a big guy, really big guy. And just when he was going to hit me and the girl, she walked in and she said, no, don't. And then Oyo turned and he walked away. He was so mad. And the girl, I said to the girl, I said, am I safe? And she said, you will be as long as I'm here. 
Julie finds an ally in her female captor, and it's not long before Anne opens up. She told me that she was Christian's sister and that she was there during her Easter break from school. I talked to her about the cost of clothing. Hmm. I thought that her clothes were quite nice. What she was wearing, they seemed somewhat stylish. And we talked about the, the repression of Nigerian women, especially ones who were in rural situations with not very much money. Julie and Anne continue their conversation over dinner, rice and a small piece of chicken. Halfway through eating, Julie tells me a look of panic washes over Anne's face. She started to choke and I jumped up and I grabbed her, lifted her and did the Heimlich maneuver on her and what was in her, what was down lodged came out. You saved her. I did save her. And so not long after that, she passed me a piece of gum. Here, take it. So it was kind of a thank you. Julie is doing everything the experts say she should. She's staying positive. She's studied her surroundings. And she's creating connections with her captors. But what Julie doesn't know is that supplies are low. Time is running out. There was a shift that changed in the house. So you were noticing a big difference. Things just got a lot more lean. At the beginning, when we first got to the house, I was given bottled water. And then I had bagged water. Okay. And this, these bags of water were sold, I believe, like down on the street corner or something, an inferior, probably just water out of someone's tap. We were running out of rice. I knew that the money was getting low for the house to function with that many people in it. And things were starting to get this kind of feeling of hopelessness. Things were just a little bit more tense. How so? Just every little thing that, that someone said kind of irritated. Like if Anne said something, it would irritate Anthony or something. And I think that they never expected that they would be there that long. I think that they thought that it was like a few days and it would be done. Time was actually getting short. I had done everything I could. I might not get out. And I was feeling really low and lonely. And I was beginning to ask for the money. Sincerely, give us the money, is what I was thinking. Our survival in the house, we needed the money. It's been 72 hours of silence, and both sides are at a breaking point. It was um, unraveling. You just said, I want her back. I'll give up my life for her. I, just, I, need, to, I need to get her back into this house. That was his main focus, main goal, um, but very, very emotional. Hard for a son to watch a dad like. It is. Very sad. Not being able to answer the telephone. The memory of Julie calling. Not having the kids in the house was hard. And we, we always had, you know, that thought about going on our own. And money sitting there to be, get paid out. We all knew the minute that if we were going to go on our own, then the RSMP would be out. Just as John begins talking about paying the ransom, a new opportunity arrives 
at the front door. We had uh, one of Julie's very good friends. She was a lawyer. She came knocking on the door. She had a person working with her, and he was from Nigeria. And uh, she says, I can help if you need to get the money over to Nigeria. When that hit the house, that information, then really, we really started looking going on our own. Now, John has a choice. He can stick with the RCMP's plan or go out on his own and pay the ransom. The question is, which way brings Julie home safely? I knew I had to feel good in my heart and what I had to do. I didn't want to have, if Julie didn't come back, I didn't want to feel guilty that a decision that we made was wrong. How did you know you were making the right one? To be honest, we didn't. At the same time in Nigeria, Julie gets an unexpected call of her own. At around five o'clock, there was a phone call that came into the house. She was phoning from a church saying that she needed to talk to me. She asked me, are you getting fed? How is your health? And are they treating you well? And I would tell her, I'm very hungry. We're not, we don't have any food. I think I might have malaria. I'm getting really sick. I need to go home. Over the next two days, Julie tells me the generator stops working and the house runs out of food. But the concerned caller stays in touch. So this woman was calling, checking on you. Right. Who did the kidnappers think she was? They thought that she was a concerned woman from a church group and that she was raising money to pay the ransom. Which is why they let you talk to her. Which is why they let me talk to her. Because they, because every day she called, I'm just getting the money together. I'm getting more and more money together. For the first time in days, Julie is hopeful. While back in Canada, John has run out of patience. He's ready to break the silence with a bold decision. So about 7 o'clock, uh, I got a hold of Charmaine. And uh, I said to Charmaine, we're going to go direct. So you had decided to do the money drop? Yes. And she says, John, please, trust me. She said, wait until we get out there. And I said, Charmaine, we've been waiting. I said, I think we're going to go. And she says, please trust me. Do not make that decision right now. And I said, Charmaine, I have one question. If it was your husband in Julie's shoes, what would you do? What RCMP negotiators can't tell John is that an operation is underway. That concerned woman calling Julie, she's actually a Nigerian Secret Service agent, and she's convinced the kidnapper's boss, Christian, to secretly meet for a cash drop. If John pays the ransom, he could bring the operation to a crashing halt and put Julie in jeopardy. The RCMP, they were at my doorstep within 15 minutes, and that's about an hour and 20 minute drive. They came in the house, sat me down, and said, we can't tell you what to do, but I would ask you to wait 
for another 24 hours. And I truly will never forget, I looked Brad right in the eye and I turned and looked at Charmaine and they both were looking at me. And, and it's fantastic how eye contact means so much. And uh, I said, okay, you got 24 hours. John waits for six hours. Then RCMP call with news. Julie's kidnapper has been captured, but a car sped away from the scene and Julie is nowhere to be found. So there was Anne, the girl, Oyo, Anthony, and I. A phone call came into Anthony's phone. The driver calls to tell Anthony Christian has been arrested and the cops are closing in on the house. He started running around. Oyo started running around. The girls started running around. And they're just gathering up all of their stuff. And they said to me, don't move. Don't open the door. Don't talk to anyone. Stay right where you are. And then Oyo ran in to this little kitchen that was part of the house. And he came out with the machine gun. The botched operation leaves Julie in great danger. Out of options, her captors prepare for their last stand. Like I had really thought this is probably, this is the end of it. On the next Taken Abroad. I was the perfect target in the light and they were in the dark. With the deal gone bust. It was as scary as when I had been taken. Julie has one chance to make it out alive. I just stood there and I thought, this is probably when I'm getting shot. Taken Abroad is written and produced by Charlie Smith. Sound production by Elizabeth Kay. Kelly Peckham is our field director. Visual researchers are Elise Forster and Blake Glassbergen. Original theme music by Nick Fowler. And the executive producer is Kelly McEwen.